0: 1 Corinthians chapter three. 1 Corinthians three. We thank the heavenly Father for the privilege of studying Thy Word. We ask that God, the Holy Spirit, will open our hearts to the truth. For we ask it in Christ's name, Amen. We begin our study tonight of the second technique of the Christian way of life. By way of review, as to where we have been. First of all, there is a barrier between God and man, which barrier has been removed by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man is on one side of the fence, God is on the other. We have seen that a part of this barrier is sin, and sin is removed by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, doctrine of atonement. Christ bore our sins in his own body on the cross. The penalty of sin is death. This is a part of the barrier. And the penalty is paid by the work of the Lord Jesus again. Christ died for our sins. Part of the barrier is the problem of physical birth. Man is born physically alive but spiritually dead. This is solved by the work of Christ, doctrine of regeneration. He must be born again, Jesus said. Part of the barrier is the problem of relative righteousness. Man's righteousness is better than other men's, but it is not as good as God. God has plus R. And man has minus R. Minus R cannot fellowship with plus R in eternity. This is solved when person believes in Christ by the doctrine of imputation and or the doctrine of justification. And there is the problem of the character of God. God has a perfect character and cannot have fellowship with that which is imperfect. This is removed by the doctrine of propitiation. And finally, there is the problem of positional truth. In Adam all die, resolved by Our new position in Christ, in Christ shall all be made alive. So that the status quo now is something like this. Here is man, here is God, and there is nothing between man and God except the person of Jesus Christ. Your attitude toward the person of Christ determines your eternal future. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Technically, this is phase one of God's plan for the human race. The first person of the Trinity is the author of a plan whereby man is brought into fellowship with himself. and This plan is divided into three phases. Phase one is salvation. We've just covered it. It's actually the point when Jesus Christ died for our sins. Phase two is the believer in time, and the executor of phase one is Christ. The executor of phase two is the Holy Spirit. Phase three is eternity. And the executor of phase three is the first person of the Trinity. Now, actually, we're studying phase two of the divine plan. For the past two weeks, we've taken up the faith rest technique. Remember that the divine plan phase two begins at the cross, phase one. You cannot enter into God's plan for time until, first of all, you believe in Jesus Christ. X equals believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. One second later, you enter into fellowship with God in time And we are studying the techniques. The first one we've just had, the faith rest technique. And now the second one. The one we begin tonight is the technique of rebound. Now there are some points of introduction before we get into rebound. First point, once a person believes in Jesus Christ, he cannot lose his salvation. Salvation is the work of God. God is perfect. Anything that God works cannot be improved upon and cannot be nullified or destroyed by any member of the human race. Summary found in Romans 8:38 and 39. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing in this universe, there is nothing in heaven above, or on the earth, or under the earth, that can keep any person from God any person who has believed in Christ. Once you have believed in Jesus Christ, you cannot lose that eternal salvation. Now, the cross represents the moment you believe in Christ, and the moment you do, you enter into union with him. This circle represents the person of Christ. The moment you believe in Christ, you enter into that circle, and nothing can ever take you out. Psalm 37, 24 says, Even though we fail, we shall not be utterly cast down. The Lord upholds us with his hand. We are held by him. We are not held by our ability. Our salvation does not depend upon us in any possible way. It's grace all the way through, which means we do not maintain our salvation. The maintenance is in the hands of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says that we have an inheritance which is incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God. We are kept by his power, therefore we cannot lose our salvation. John 10:28, Jesus says, "I given unto them eternal life, they shall never perish, neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. No one can be plucked out of the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. So by way of summary, you cannot get out of that top circle. Once you're in, you cannot lose your salvation. First or second Timothy chapter two, verse 13. It is conceivable that some believers will even at a future date deny the Lord Jesus Christ. But even denial of Christ will not remove salvation. If we deny him, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. It is impossible for any person to lose his salvation, and this is the first principle of introduction as far as the doctrine of rebound is concerned. Now the second principle is the of introduction is the doctrine of carnality. Once we accept Christ as Savior, we enter into this top circle and we can never get out. But we also entered a fellowship with God in time, and this is the bottom circle. And, of course, since we still sin and still fail, every time we do, we go outside of the bottom circle. And this is called status quo carnality. Inside of this bottom circle is called status quo spirituality. Every believer at any point of time is either carnal or spiritual. Right now, if you are a believer, you are either carnal or spiritual. You're either inside or outside of that bottom circle. And this is an absolute status. You are either one or the other. You're not partially spiritual and partially carnal. This is Carnality is an absolute. Spirituality is an absolute. We become carnal when we sin. We become spiritual when we get back into the bottom circle, and getting back into the bottom circle is our subject, rebound. How we do that we'll take up in just a moment. Now let's look at it from another viewpoint. This circle represents the body of the unbeliever. Inside of this body is a human soul, Inside of this body is the old sin nature. The old sin nature is the culprit. The old sin nature is the source of all sin. Inside of this body is the conscience, and we give it a minus C because if you have any sense or if you have any rationalism or any logical progressions running around in your cerebrum, you can make black, white, white, black, or everything some shade of gray. Now, that's all very simple to do, and so with the best we can do is give you a minus C. If you're a little bit stupid, we might add a plus, but no one looks stupid here tonight, so we'll still make it minus. Now, the moment you accept Christ as Savior, you become a square. Every believer, of course, is a square. That's obvious. And inside the square represents the body of the believer. He still has a soul. Now he has a human spirit, the ability to absorb spiritual phenomena. He still has the old sin nature, and God the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. The big issue in phase two and or the Christian way of life is who controls the square, When the Holy Spirit controls the square, we call it spirituality. When the old nature controls the square, we call it carnality. And that is the subject before us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I, brethren, the word brethren refers to a person who has received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual. In other words, the Holy Spirit was not controlling the squares in Corinth. All of these Corinthian believers were out of fellowship. They were out of the bottom circle, and consequently the old sin nature was in control. I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babies in Christ. Now what is a carnal Christian? Well, from the standpoint of the two circles, a carnal Christian is a person who is still in that top circle. He's still in union with Christ. He hasn't lost his eternal salvation. However, While he was once in the bottom circle, representing fellowship with God in time, he is now outside through sin. Sin takes him outside any sin in the life, and now his status quo is carnal. Paul is addressing himself to believers who are out here from the standpoint of time, but even carnal Christians are still in the top circle. They cannot lose their salvation. Jude 24 says, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling... And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, that the only wise God, our Savior, unto him be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. He is the one who is able to keep us from falling. We never get out of that top circle. But this particular passage is addressed to the carnal Christian. Now, we must recognize the existence of the carnal Christian. If you don't, the first time some Christian does something that shocks you, you may never recover. You may think that once a person accepts Christ, he can do no wrong. And I want you to learn this doctrine right now. This is a summary of it. The finest people in the world are Christians, and the world's worst stinkers are also Christians. It all depends on status quo, carnality or spirituality. And uh, please stop trying to run around and apologize for other believers. And don't use this gimmick. This is the favorite. Someone comes to you and says, Is so-and-so a Christian? You get a little cagey, well, I thought he was. And then they say, well, what about his doing so-and-so? Well, then you immediately you reply and say, well, he must have had a head belief and not a heart belief. He really wasn't a Christian at all. That isn't true. The worst people in the world tonight are Christians. The most miserable people in the world tonight are Christians out of fellowship. The happiest people in the world tonight are also Christians. Christians who are in that bottom circle, Christians who are in fellowship, Now, this particular passage is designed to cause us to recognize the fact there is such a thing as a carnal Christian. There is such a thing as a believer out of the bottom circle, a believer out of fellowship. A believer out of fellowship is any Christian under the control of the old sin nature. It can always be detected by sin in the life. Please notice the description of a carnal Christian babies in Christ. You will note they are still in Christ even though they are babies, or perhaps we could even use the word morons, spiritual morons in this particular case. Now it's very easy to detect babies in the spiritual life. For example, uh, babies require a lot of attention, and carnal Christians always require a tremendous amount of attention. If some minister doesn't pat them on the head, they pick up their marbles and go home. They're highly insulted. They say, this is an unfriendly church. Uh, if uh, someone doesn't recognize every little deed they do around the church, every time they give over five dollars or put a basket of flowers down in front or something, then they're mortally offended. That's a carnal Christian. That's a baby. And the worst thing any minister can do is start patting believers on the head. Uh, as one man once put it in Time magazine, what we need is a kink of the, you know, kick in the pants, not a pat on the head. How true that is. And he said, then he went on to criticize most churches because... The ministers were not being honest with the congregation. They were telling Mrs. Brown how great she was in the bulletin, and they were uh, commending uh, Brother Smith because he made 425 calls last year. Uh, What he did with those calls, no one knows, and it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. The point is that people do things for commendation. People love attention. And a carnal Christian is a baby because the carnal Christian loves attention. And he thrives on attention, he lives for attention. And many times the reason he joins the church is because, uh, well, he doesn't get the right type of attention in the business world, he hasn't done too well, he doesn't get the right type of attention socially, he's been ostracized, he went overboard a couple of times, and uh, therefore he tries the church. Here they have to give him attention, otherwise it isn't cricket. So they come expecting to find a lonely hearts club where everyone will tell them how good they are. And this is exactly what the church is not. The objective of the church is to lay it on the line and to call a spade a spade and to stick right with the word of God. Now, I want you to notice, here's a preacher by the name of Paul, and he's addressing his former congregation, the Corinthians, and he calls them carnal Christians, and he follows it up with this phrase. He says they are babies. And, of course, again, there are many ways of checking out babies. Babies can't talk. I remember when my son first came home from the hospital. One of the first things I thought we'd do is sit down and have a nice chat. But I found out at that time he had a different language from mine, and we didn't get anywhere in our conversation. Well, babies can't speak for the Lord Jesus Christ. My second disappointment with him was the fact that I had a couple of T-bone steaks waiting, and I had to eat both of them because he couldn't eat steak yet. He, When he opened his mouth, I saw the problem, just pink gums, and that was it. And that's the way it is with babies. They can't take in solid food. If you don't do a soft shoe buck and wing and a little entertainment on the side, they can't even listen. And, of course, the objective is to teach, and teaching involves a lot of repetition, pounding it in, pounding it in, and uh, consequently the babies never learn because they are not teachable. Well, here is the problem of the carnal Christian. And Paul goes on to say, I have fed you with milk and not with solid food, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, and you're still not able to take it in. For ye are yet carnal. Existence of the carnal Christian... The carnal Christian is a believer out of the bottom circle. The carnal Christian is a believer out of fellowship. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you... Now, please notice, how would you describe Christian sin? How would you describe carnality? Well, most people usually try to take one or two taboos and make a great issue out of them. Or one or two sins in the lascivious area licentiousness, and so on, and they oh and ah about this, look utterly shocked, and they just can't believe that a Christian would do this sort of thing. As a matter of fact, that isn't really too bad compared to some other sins. Now, the Bible has a marvelous way of placing the emphasis on the real sins. And I want you to notice some of the terrible things that are listed in context. What is carnality in this context? Well, notice, envying, sour grapes, Operation Sour Grapes, and any Christian who has any envy toward any other believer, any jealousy up in the frontal lobe, he's had it. And that's just as bad as the things uh, that are more obvious as far as sin is concerned. Envy, strife, strife simply means to play spiritual king of the mountain. In one corner of the church is a person who wants to be the big frog in the little puddle. Now, there been, there's been some conversation about another frog in the other corner of the church. The other frog has been complimented quite highly several times, and this arouses the envy of the first frog. So the first frog starts to huff and puff and push the other frog out of the pond, which is called spiritual king of the mountain. Many times people run each other down, they gossip, they malign each other, simply because they uh, want to belittle the other person in order that they might be king of the mountain. So carnality is manifest by playing spiritual king of the mountain. Strife divisions. Are ye not carnal, and then notice the last four words, and walk as men. Present linear action, Sartre, keep on walking as men. Men here refers to the unbeliever. And you cannot distinguish between a carnal Christian and an unbeliever. As far as carnality is concerned, there is no way to distinguish between the two. All right, we have established the principle now from 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, the existence of a carnal Christian. Now let's turn back one book to Romans 7. In Romans 7, we see carnality on the inside. Romans chapter 7, we'll start at verse 14. Romans 7:14. We have a reference to the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law is called good. That's exactly what the law is. It's holy, just, and good. For we know that the law is spiritual. The law is from God, and there's nothing wrong with the law. Some people can't keep it, and that, of course, the culprit is the old sin nature. Now, Paul says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin, in bondage to sin. Sin in the singular refers to the sin nature. I'm in bondage to the old sin nature, Paul says. Now, let's take a look at the square again. This square represents the Apostle Paul, who is the writer. He has the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. He also has an old sin nature. And at this particular moment, the old sin nature controls. He is said he is under bondage to sin, or to the old sin nature, which of course makes him a carnal Christian. He says, I am carnal, recognizing his carnal state, sold, perfect hands, sold in the past with the result that I remain in bondage to the sin nature. Now he describes what it's like on the inside when the old sin nature controls a person. And the description is given in a very nice capsule, a summary in verse 15. I'm going to read it as it stands here, and then I'm going to show you now, uh, the Greek brings out what is really here. I'll read the thundering diction of the King James Version first, however. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Now, if you've had a course or two in Shakespeare, that's very clear. If you haven't, this is possibly a little confusing. The real problem is that we have the word do three times. We have the problem of do, D-O. And I want you to notice that the first time we have do in this context, it's a word that looks like this in the Greek, kat ergodzomai. Now, in the English, that would look something like that, k-a-t-e-r-g-a-z-o-m-a-i, kat ergodzomai. And kat ergodzomai means something on the inside working its way out. The first time you find the word do in this verse, it means something on the inside working its way out. The second time the word do occurs, it's the Greek word proso, looks like this, p-r-a-s-s-o, proso, and proso means to practice, to keep working on something till you practice. I just came from the dugout of the Dodgers the Post Oak National Little League Dodgers, and I've decided they need practice. Just lost a ball game. I may not even get through this Bible class tonight. Poio is the next one. P-O-I-E-O. And that one's the only word that means to do. Now, you can immediately see what a problem we have. Frankly, I've never figured out why 48 men couldn't figure out the translation of this particular passage. And they put the word do down every time. So we're going to go over this verse 15 again and you'll see exactly what carnality is like on the inside. Verse 15, for that which I do, literally that which keeps on working out of me, what works out of the individual sin, on the inside is an old sin nature. The old sin nature is the source of sin and whenever the old sin nature is in control of the square, the result is sin works its way out. For that which works out of me, now the word allow means to understand, literally, I do not understand. For that which keeps working out of me as a Christian is sin, and I don't understand it. That's the point. I don't get this at all. Here I am a Christian now. I have received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm born again. God the Holy Spirit dwells inside of me. I'm a priest. I'm an ambassador for Christ. I have all of these marvelous blessings, possessor of eternal life, sins forgiven and blotted out. As far as the east is from the west, so far I have to my transgressions from me. And yet, in spite of all of these wonderful things of being a Christian, here I find working out of me sin. And I don't understand it, Paul says. For what I would, literally what I desire, that I do not practice, literally. In other words, I desire to honor the Lord, but this isn't what I'm practicing. But what I hate, namely sin in this case... Well, that's what I'm doing. Now that's carnality, description from the inside, and that's what it mean when, what it means when it says at the end of verse 14, "I am carnal, sold or under the bondage to the sin nature." It means that on the inside is an old sin nature, and it expresses itself in a number of different ways called sin or carnality. Now, there are many passages we could uh, study tonight which describe various kinds of Christian sins. Let me hasten to say it is impossible for any Christian to commit the unpardonable sin. A person who has received Christ as Savior can never commit the unpardonable sin. And Christians can commit any sin that an unbeliever can commit and add a few more to it. Remember. The worst people you will ever run into are Christians. You have not been properly cheated in business until a Christian does it. You have not been properly maligned and slammed until some Christian does it. You have not really been hated in the Apache style until some Christian does it. The worst stinkers in the world are Christians, and the reason is because of carnality. Now, there are several other reasons. Why are these Christians so bad? In order to commit these sins, they have to go through greater barriers of, of resistance. And by breaking through those barriers, they come out on the other side in pretty bad shape. However, there's no excuse for any Christian getting into this condition if he uses rebound, which is the subject for the next couple of Tuesday nights. And that's why we take up the doctrine of rebound before we get into the subject of spirituality. To appraise you of the fact that potentially you can be the world's worst person, but because of God's gracious provision and rebound, you do not have to be and I do not have to be. And even when we get into some pretty rotten kinds of sin, we can always move out again because of God's provision and God's grace. Let me give you a little point right now to save you some wear and tear. If you commit some sort of a sin and you're kind of down about it, you realize you're in pretty bad shape. Let me remind you of this fact. If you're still alive when the smoke is cleared, stand by for discipline. And uh, the best way to take the discipline and to get rolling again is to rebound. Now, you don't know what rebound is yet, but we're getting ready for it. All right, several passages which describe Christian sins. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. And then there's one special one that I want to look up with you tonight, found in Proverbs. Proverbs. Proverbs is in the middle of your Bible, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 6. Turn about the middle of your Bible and you'll hit it right away. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. Now please remember that with the exception of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, most of the sins described in the Bible, unless the context indicates otherwise, are sins of believers. Proverbs is addressed to the believer. And in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17 and 18, we have sins committed by believers. And these are things that God hates. All right? Uh, Before you look at this, just look up for a moment. Don't look at it. Think of your list of the world's worst sins. Everyone has a list. When I was an unbeliever, I had a list. Number one on my list was kiss and tell. The worst people in the world were the ones who were guilty of kiss and tell. And in the crowd that I ran with, if anyone started to brag about his girlfriends, we threw him out immediately. He was no gentleman. The second thing I remember in my scale of values was never to Welsh on an obligation. And the third one was to always level with people. Be honest. Don't be hypocritical. And there were three or four other ones. I will not develop those. You'll begin to wonder where I lived. But however, everyone has some concept of what's right and what's wrong. Everyone has some scale. Now you think of the worst things that people can do. And now let's see how they jibe with God's list. All right, here's what God says are seven sins that he hates. Verse 16, These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Now, stand by for some shocks. You belong to a church somewhere where there's a lot of gossip, then that church is low on the totem pole. Out of these seven lists of sins, three out of seven are sins of the time. So that may ruin your list right now. All right, the first one is pride. A proud look, that's number one on the list, pride. Some of the worst Christians I have ever known are the Christians who think they are the most spiritual. They're the kind of Christians who observe two or three taboos, and my, how proud they are. They're so proud that they are so spiritual that they gave up one, two, three, four, five, and they did it for the Lord, and now they're really great. They have arrived, and they're really fat-headed, and not spiritual at all. They're out of fellowship, and usually blind. And I know people who have been bullying local churches for years on the basis that they are spiritual giants and everyone should do what they do, And frankly, they're not even spiritual at all. In fact, I remember when I first came to Baraka, we had one or two, and I finally told them, and uh, they went and sought other greener pastures. But it's true. There's a tremendous amount of hypocrisy. People think that they observe one or two taboos, and somehow this makes them a spiritual giant. And it doesn't at all, because usually they're guilty of the worst thing of all, pride. I remember the case of the Christian boy who... Uh, read that he, in the Bible that Christians were supposed to be humble. And uh, he just, this was a college boy and a friend of mine in college, and he decided he was going to practice that verse until he could do it perfectly. He thought that the way to live the Christian life was to get a hold of a verse and to keep practicing it. So he started practicing being humble. And I remember that uh, first signs, he stopped combing his hair, brushing his teeth, shaving. Uh, he was practicing humility. Then uh, from there he was a very fine dresser, and all of a sudden he began to come out in some rather odd combinations. Colors were all mixed up, and uh, he looked pretty scrappy. And uh, finally, uh, he didn't think he was getting humble enough, so he started, well, for example, we used to be standing around uh, discussing some academic subject, Kant's categorical imperatives or something, and he'd walk right up and say, "'Gosh, I'm awful!' And then he'd shuffle his feet in the ground, and he'd lower his eyes to half-mass and drop his head. And we'd stop, we'd look at him, wonder if he'd gone non-compass medicine and carry on. And after a while, he developed this self-effacement thing to the point where he was so proud of his humility. He was one of the proudest people, persons I've ever seen, right here. He was carnal, he was out of fellowship, and he thought he'd really arrived. He finally caught on, uh, in fact, it was this passage that helped him out, a proud look. He was proud of his humility. All right, the second one, a lying tongue, high on the list. Three, hands that shed innocent blood, murder. By the way, Christians do commit murder. It doesn't happen every day, but it does happen. Don't think that Christians can't commit murder, because they do. I know of one case, specifically, where a Christian did commit murder. However, he didn't start there. He worked out to it. By getting out of fellowship on a little thing and staying out of fellowship for a long time and he just happened to have a fiery temper and it uh, caught up with him. Alright, next, verse 18. The heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Thinking up ways to torture people you don't like. See, mental attitude. Here's a sin of mental attitude. Feet that are swift to the running of mischief. Troublemakers. Obstructionists in the local churches. Many of you go to different churches. Do you know any troublemakers in your church? Well, faith are swift to causing trouble. Next, verse 19, number six, a false witness that speaketh lies. Person who is deliberately perjuring himself, lying about someone else under oath. And finally, he that soweth discord among the brethren. Now there's a list for you. You want to know what sin is? By the way, I haven't heard any preachers stand up and condemn these things. The average preacher li- apparently has lived a sheltered life, and he's shocked to death because someone has uh, uh, upended a bottle and uh, broken it and said a few horrible things. And uh, so he gets up and preaches a booze sermon. And then the uh, next time he gets up and preaches one on immorality. He's afraid of pretty girls himself, and so uh, he read a couple of stories, and this is the way he gets into his chit-chat, and so on. And so everyone thinks that all sin is, is uh, a little immorality and a little heavy drinking and a little partying and a couple other things. Now, that's pitiful, and that's exactly what we have today. It isn't the biblical perspective at all. Now, here is a Bible list of sins. This isn't all, but this gives you the, the idea. See, sin hits everyone. Now, everyone has an old sin nature, and the old sin nature is the source of all of these things. Now, we should look into the old sin nature for a moment before we get too far along the way, because every old sin nature, well, this diamond represents the old sin nature. Everyone has one. Now, I I admit tonight that this is a very respectable-looking crowd, and it's very hard to look at all of these lovely, respectable faces and to tell you that you have an old sin nature, especially when you flutter your eyes, bat your eyes a little bit when I say that and so on. But it is true. However, if you're concerned, I have one too. We all have one. This is standard equipment for every believer. It is something we do not lose at the point of salvation. This is the reason why no one will ever be perfect in this life as a Christian. Perfection or ultimate sanctification comes with a resurrection body beyond the grave, but now in time there's no such thing as a perfect Christian. Now here's the old sin nature. On the northern part of the old sin nature, up at the top here, is the area of strength. And everyone has an area of strength. There are some things that you would never do which are wrong, but you personally would never do them, and uh, so on. My father was an unbeliever most of his life. Until the last year of his life, he was an unbeliever. There were certain things he would never do. Now he knew how to go out and raise hell, and he had his own areas of weakness. But he was an unbeliever, and yet there were two of the taboos that I have since heard preached from the pulpit, and he observed those taboos meticulously, and if some preacher had bumped into him, why, he would have thought he was a Christian on the basis of how he observed certain taboos. It just, it just never occurred to him want to do those things. It had nothing to do with Christianity. It wasn't that he was saved. It just so happened this was his area of strength. Now, every one of you have an area of strength, and there are certain areas where temptation is almost not bona fide. You're not tempted to do it. For example, uh, I would never think of stealing anything. It just never occurs to me. I don't want to steal anything. I've never had any desire, so that would be called an area of strength. But on the other hand, we all have areas of weakness. For example, there are many times when I'd uh, just as soon poke someone in the nose and talk to them. Now, that's an area of weakness, you see. That's temper. And uh, so we all have something we are not prone to do. What's one of the biggest problems I ever have, and I I had it for years. I finally got over it before I got into the ministry, because I understand a bishop isn't supposed to hit anyone. But I slugged my way through life enjoyed it, solved a lot of problems. Just think how easy it would be if if all all the problems in any church could be solved by just poking some person in the nose, preferably a male, of course. But it doesn't but you see the point is every one of us have a, something we're never tempted to do, and we have something we are tempted to do, so every one of us have an area of weakness, and that's down south here, the area of weakness, and, they, and the area of strength is up north here, so every one of us have in the old sin nature an area where we are strong, humanly speaking, and an area where we are prone to temptation, humanly speaking. Now, one of the greatest problems in the local church today is that people, well, let's take a local church. This represents a local church, and here are some sin natures floating around in the local church. Now, we need about four or five of them. Here are two people who have the same area of strength and the same area of weakness. And down here is a person who just committed a sin. And they look at this person and they would never think of doing that. So they put their heads together and they say, isn't that awful? The other person says, that is terrible. The first one says, I'd never think of doing a thing like that. The other says, me either. And then they recognize each other. We're all buddies. We are having Christian fellowship. And they start a mutual admiration society and they pat each other on the back. I'd never think of doing it. Neither would I. Aren't we wonderful? So and then they so they call it Christian fellowship. It really isn't. And uh, over here are some others. Now they have a different area of weakness and a different area of strength. And so these two, this group, have an area of weakness called gossip. So they start to gossip about this person. And now these people get together and they say we'd never gossip. And they look over at these and glare, and they look at these and glare. And pretty soon you have a good rat race going. And they call it Christian fellowship. And they call it schisms and so on. Groups within groups. And the basis is, of course, human compatibility. We'd never think of doing that, so we're old friends. Others would do that thing Why? they're weak. But now, what's wrong with this? It fails to take into account that everyone has an old sin nature. The old sin nature is the source of sin. And, whereas we may express our old sin natures in different ways, we still have one. And this is not a true basis for compatibility, and above all, it is not a true basis for spirituality. You see, the top two say, we'd never do a thing like that, so they get together, and in their mutual admiration society, they say, we are spiritual. They're not spiritual at all. They're fat-headed about the fact they didn't do it, so pride keeps them from being spiritual. In addition to that, they're operating on a false system called relative spirituality. My sins are more refined than your sins, therefore I'm better than you are. Now, everyone has one, and please remember to have a little compassion. When you see someone else step out of line, remember you have one too, and just because it doesn't happen to be your day to be doing that, it doesn't mean that you won't be doing it tomorrow or some, something else. So one of the great principles of contact with other believers and fellowship with other believers is a principle we'll get a little later on, live and let live which is the concept that every person must handle his own sins before the Lord, and there is is no place in the Christian way of life where spiritual bullying try to run the lives of others. The people who do that as a rule are people who have made a blotch of their own, and now they're trying to tell everyone else. They've become an expert through failure. Now they're trying to tell everyone else how to do it. And we run into that particular problem in many local churches today. All right, now we're ready for Rebound. Carnality is a real issue. Rebound is found in 1 John chapter 1. And I want to rapidly cover a few verses prior to it so we can integrate with the context. The subject now is rebound. How to get back in fellowship when we're out. Alright, let's review once more. The moment we believe in Christ, we enter into union with Christ. We can never get out of that top circle, doctrine of eternal security. The moment we believe in Christ, we also enter into fellowship with God in time. The minute we sin, we are in the status quo of carnality. And we must get back into fellowship, back into the bottom circle again. 1 John, chapter 1. Now in this particular passage, we have a two-fold concept of fellowship in chapter 1. Eternal fellowship, which is the top circle. Temporal fellowship, which is fellowship with God in time. That which was from the beginning, which always was from the beginning, imperfect linear action, sorry, reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, which we have heard, which we have seen uh, with our eyes, and which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life, reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the passage goes on then to declare something of the person of the Son of God. Now in verse 5, the purpose of the epistle is given in verse 4 to promote joy or inner happiness among believers. And actually, every believer should have inner beauty and inner happiness. These two, of course, come up under spirituality a little later. But joy, which is mentioned in verse 4, is the doctrine of inner happiness. These things write we unto you that your joy may be fulfilled in the past with the result that it stays in status quo of being fulfilled. In verse 5, we have a contrast of essence. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light. Now, God is light is simply a statement of divine essence. God is light. God is light in the sense of sovereign, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, immutability. God is everything that is perfect. So let's summarize the essence box with the word perfect. So on one side of the fence, God is perfect. Now the essence of man is declared in the same verse. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Darkness is the essence of man. Darkness because of sin. The essence of God is declared as light. The analogy is obvious. There's a contrast between light and darkness. The essence of man is darkness. Darkness represents man's sin, man's sin nature. Now, starting at this point, verse 6, and going through verse 10, we have a series of conditional clauses. And we should pause for a moment to recognize what is meant by if in the Greek. Every time you have if in the Greek, It represents one of four things. It introduces a conditional clause. A first-class condition means if, and it's true. Second-class condition, if, and it's not true. Third-class condition, if, maybe yes, maybe no. Fourth-class condition, if, I wish it was true, but it isn't. A negative, a wish which is negative in reality. If I wish it was, but it doesn't. Now, suppose a young man is about to pop the question to a sweet young thing. He wants to, uh, and he puts, in, he gives a sentence to her, something like this. This is the way it would go in the English. If you will marry me, I will buy you a brand new Buick. All right. That's simple in the English, but in the Greek, it could mean one of four things. Suppose that sentence is in a first-class condition. If you will marry me, I will buy you a brand-new Buick. What is their status? She's already agreed to marry him, so the Buick is forthcoming. All right, second. If you will marry me, second-class condition, I will buy you a brand-new Buick. This time, if, but it's not true. She has already refused him, and he's just dangling the Buick up there to rub it in a little bit, make her feel bad. You've missed something. All right, if the thing is still in doubt, you see, if the third class condition would, it would say this, if you will marry me, maybe you will and maybe you won't. I'll buy you a Buick. Now the Buick is bait. See how the Greek, each one of these is different. And finally, if you will marry me, fourth class condition, I wish you would, but you won't, I'll buy you a Buick. And he's bitter about it, see. So you see, the Greeks, every time they had the word if, they expressed uh, something different, a shade. Of something. For example, let's take Matthew chapter 4, where uh, the uh, Satan says to Jesus, If thou be the Son of God, first class condition, and you are the Son of God. If you will fall down and worship me, second class condition, but you won't fall down and worship me. Oh, well, Peter uses the fourth class in a very interesting way. He says, If you suffer for righteousness sake. And they put in a fourth class condition, I wish you were, but you're not. In other words, you're being disciplined. All right, now we have all of these ifs are third-class conditions. If, maybe yes, and maybe no. Every if we have from verse 6 through verse 10 now is a third-class condition, and it means it's up to you as the believer. You can do this or not. All right, let's check them out now. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie... And do not the truth. We do not practice the truth. Maybe we'll say this and maybe we won't. If we walk in the light, positional truth and actually, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses from all sin. Now we get to our subject. Verse 8. If we say that we have no sin. Notice that sin is in the singular. It is a reference to the sin nature. If we say that we have no sin nature, very important to understand, this is the sin nature we're discussing here. If we say that we have no sin nature, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. We do not have doctrine in the frontal lobe. We just simply do not understand the doctrine of carnality. Now, every once in a while you'll bump into some Christian who says he doesn't sin anymore, that he's perfect, and uh, he's deceiving himself. He says, in effect, he doesn't have a sin nature anymore. There is no doctrine in him. Skip verse 9 for the moment. We'll look at the other phase, the other problem of carnality. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar And his word is not in us. We're not only liars ourselves, we make God a liar. Occasionally you'll find Christians who try to say, I don't sin. I never do anything wrong. Well, they're making God a liar because God says that we all have a sin nature and that at some time or another we all sin and we all fail. Now, you know, this is really very relaxing, very wonderful, and I trust that you're well relaxed now because, you see, at some time or another we all fail. None of us are perfect. And we're all here tonight because of the grace of God. Because of his provision. We're not here because we're better than anyone else. I hope that there is no one who is tied up in knots by that illusion that somehow he's a little better than everyone else in the human race. He does a few things and he's a bit on the sacrificial side and he practices asceticism, lives on lettuce leaves and carinder seed and contemplates infinity and so on and therefore a little better than everyone else. Now let's all relax and realize this great principle that none of us are perfect. We all have a sin nature... We all have our own areas of failure. The great people, the great believers of the past, are always the people who rebound. The great believers of the past who are are the ones who never let their sins keep them out of fellowship and neutralize them. Great believers are not people who have been perfect, but people who never stay down. They get up and move on. We'll see that illustrated in just a moment. But first of all, our subject now, the mechanics of rebound. 1 John 1, 9. If, third class condition, maybe we will and maybe we won't. Maybe we'll confess our sins and maybe we will not. It's up to the volition of the believer, whether he ever gets with this or not. If we, pronoun, subject of the verb referring to Christians, this is for Christians only. This is for those people who are under the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. This is for phase two only. If you have not accepted Christ as Savior, confession is absolutely useless. Judas Iscariot confessed his sins, felt sorry for his sins, and made restitution. He did everything but believe in Christ, and therefore he was lost. He died an unbeliever. Confession is for believers only. If we confess, the Greek word means to acknowledge. It does not mean to feel sorry for your sins. It does not mean to renounce your sins. It does not mean to have a guilty conscience. It means simply to acknowledge them and to God, of course. Many people think that it is absolutely necessary to stand up in front of a congregation and confess sins. Nothing could be worse. Get everyone else out of fellowship. Uh, I remember a minister or a missionary that came back from Africa. And he was describing this great revival. That's the way he used the adjective. This great, great revival. And he started to tell about how one of these black boys would get up and tell all the things he'd done. Well, everybody kind of bent an ear. They'd been what they would have been doing for a long time. So another one uh, couldn't be outdone, and he got up and he started to confess. And then someone else, and they just all got in line for this thing. And the word got around that these people were confessing their sins, and the next night they had a big crowd. They all came out to hear the dirt. Now, he called this a great revival. It wasn't a revival at all. It was an atrocity which should have been stopped. When people stand up and confess their sins, and it's no one else's business unless they're personally involved, all they do is get out of fellowship. You ought to see people run for Alexander Graham Bell after a confessional meeting. They get on the horn and crank it up and talk to their dear friend, Did you hear what Pete Brown did? And then yakety-yak, and here we go. They're, who's out of fellowship then? The innocent bystander in the queue gets out of fellowship about as quickly as anyone in that manner. So the word confess here is directed toward God, because you see it is God who forgives sin. Now, there is nothing wrong with straightening out something with someone if you have hurt someone. That's permissible. Do it privately, and don't do it, of course, until, first of all, you have rebounded. All right, if we acknowledge, the word is in the present tense, which means this is habitual. This is something we must do constantly. The word is in the subjunctive mood, which means... This is a potential thing. Maybe we will and maybe we won't. That's in keeping with the third class condition. If we acknowledge our sins, that is to God, I want you to notice something. It doesn't say if we ask for forgiveness. Please don't insult God. Do not ask for forgiveness. Just acknowledge them and you will be forgiven. I want you to notice very carefully the wording. It doesn't say if we ask forgiveness. Immediately some of you think of the Lord's Prayer so-called the disciples' prayer, the prayer Jesus taught the disciples to pray and which he mentioned uh, if we uh, asked forgiveness and so on. This is not on the same principle at all. This is something entirely different and it has to do with living under the law. You're to be forgiven as you forgive others. But here the concept in this age is confess, acknowledge, name it. If we acknowledge Our sins, he, pronoun referring to God, he is faithful. That is, God does the same thing every time. He doesn't say uh, that, well, you don't deserve it or something. But he always practices the same thing. He is faithful and just. God is just to forgive us because we are under the blood of Christ. Please notice verse 7. The blood of Christ cleanses from all sin, past, present, and future and therefore, he is justified in forgiving us. To forgive us our sins. This is an aorist infinitive denoting divine purpose. Aorist once and for all, to forgive us our sins and to once and for all cleanse from, please notice, all unrighteousness. Generally, when we sin, there are some unknown sins that accompany. There are things we do that are wrong, but we do not know they are wrong. So when we confess the known sins... He forgives us the unknown sins at the same time. If you get out of fellowship through some unknown sin along the way, you will very quickly commit some known sin, and when you confess the known sin, you are forgiven the unknown sin at the same time. Now that's the grace of God. I didn't invent 1 John 1, 9. There are always some legalists that get terribly angry and put out with me because they think that I have just given everyone a license to raise hell and live it up. Now, that isn't the purpose of 1 John 1, 9 at all. The purpose is to serve God. No believer can serve God without divine power. Divine power is only found in the bottom circle, and the whole objective is to get the believer from status quo carnality, back into fellowship with God. The carnal believer is out here. There's only one way he can get back in, and that's by way of 1 John 1, 9, which is confessing our sins to God or acknowledging them. Now, please note this is in the framework of grace. To acknowledge sin is to, of course, have no merit attached. There's no merit attached to acknowledging a sin. It's strictly on a grace principle. We don't earn, deserve, or work for anything in that particular situation. Now, of course, don't misunderstand 1 John 1, 9 in this way. There's a tendency to distort a little bit. Some people think, well, all you do is acknowledge, and uh, if you feel sorry for it, that doesn't count. If you feel sorry for your sins, that's all right. But you can feel sorry for your sins from now until doomsday, and you're still out of the bottom circle. The point is that feeling sorry for sin is, humanly speaking, meritorious. It is works, and no one gets back into fellowship with God through works, even as no one is saved through works. So feeling sorry for your sin is permissible, but it does not get you in fellowship. I know people who feel very sorry for things that they've done, but they're not back in fellowship. Now, this is God's way, not man's way. God's way is the grace way. We don't earn it, we don't deserve it. We simply acknowledge our sins, and He is faithful, He's just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and this is the only way to be forgiven and cleansed. I never forget the first time I stepped out of line, there was no question about it, and I was a brand new Christian, and I was a little disturbed about it. I didn't know where I went from here. I didn't know whether I lost my salvation or whether I went through seven years of some something real rough, or what happened. So I checked in with the minister that I knew, and uh, he wasn't in at the time, so I thought I'd go down the line and check with a few other reverends. So I got a hold of the uh, Beverly Hills telephone book, and of course oh, there weren't any reverends in Beverly Hills, so I tried Los Angeles. And I got a hold of about three or four reverends, and I got some very interesting information. I explained my situation to one reverend, and he said to me, well, he said, now, brother, What you need to do is to start coming to prayer meetings. And he said, if you will just come to prayer meeting, we'll pray you out of your problem. Well, that sounded like a pretty good idea, and this was close to their prayer meeting, so I tried it. And everybody prayed over me, and they did a little shouting and everything, and they asked me if I felt better. I didn't feel a bit better, so I checked with another reverend. And he said that, no, he said, uh, uh, now, by the way, there's nothing wrong with going to prayer meeting. Don't misunderstand that. It just uh, so happened, that's no way to get back in fellowship. Then this uh, other reverend said, now, brother, what's the matter? Here's what's wrong with you. You Have have you ever dedicated your body? Well, I did a double take on that, and I said, no, I don't recall. I'm just a new believer. I've just trusted in Christ. What is this? Uh, dedicating your body business. I didn't know what I was going to have to Be throwing in a quart of oil or what? <laughs> so he got Romans 12.1 out and he explained it to me. So I dedicated my body. But you know the funny thing, there's a bona fide place for Romans 12.1, but it just doesn't get you back in fellowship. So I left that pipe still out of fellowship. Then I tried another one. And this one said, what you must do is Yield, yield to God, brother. I can still hear him say. He said about four times, as a matter of fact, and I was trying to get with it. Uh And I tried to think, yield, work up, yield, and so on. And do you have it now, brother? And well, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> Let's go through this again. So finally, he had me out of there with my neck kind of twisted, and so on. I was trying to yield. Well. This is absolutely useless. I was out in the Tuleys. I was out of fellowship. Yielding doesn't do any good. You can't yield when you're in status quo carnality. Yielding is the result of the filling of the Spirit. And I wasn't filled with the Spirit. I was out of the bottom circle, status quo carnality. Well, several other things were suggested, including going to a nearby camp uh, some 60 miles away and throwing a faggot on the fire. Well, they had all kinds of things. Uh, doing penance of one kind and another. Signing my name in a book. And one person even suggested if I joined his church, my troubles would be over. By that time, I was a little leery and I didn't join his church. And then my minister came back in town and we got with this thing, First John 1, 9. Now, there are a lot of ideas today on how you can solve carnality. They're all works systems. They come under the category of legalism. You do something, and what you do, you're still out of fellowship. There is only one answer to getting back into into the bottom circle, back into fellowship with the Lord, and that's 1 John 1, 9. Now, this is called in another passage, self-judgment, just another way of describing the same thing. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we have a passage on the communion table, the Eucharist. And in this passage, there's a warning of discipline. If believers, every believer priest, has the right to partake of the communion elements. But believers are warned that they should never partake of these elements with any sin in the life. And when they do, of course, they're up for discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 30. For this cause... Now, the cause has been stated in the context. The cause is sin in the life, carnality. For this cause, many, many Christians are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. There are three categories of divine discipline here. Uh, first of all, illnesses which are not organic. Secondly, organic illness, and finally, death. And these uh, illnesses are declared as a discipline for partaking of the elements with unconfessed sin in the life. Now, here's the alternative, verse 31. For if, second-class condition, which means these Corinthians hadn't been doing it, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. What is self-judgment? Exactly the same as confession of sin. Confessing sin is judging self, acknowledging sin to the Lord. And in the case of the communion table when you do this there is no discipline the discipline is removed we should not be judged or disciplined all right now i want you to notice the alternative what is the result of sin every time we sin there's an alter- and get out of fellowship the immediately we are in the area of discipline so let's look at it this way for a moment over here is the bottom circle here is fellowship with god in time now, this is the place of spirituality. We sin, we go outside. The, immediate, the moment we go outside, the moment we sin, we come under the category of Hebrews twelve six, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and he skins alive with a whip every son whom he receiveth. Every time we sin, we're put under discipline of one kind or another. Now, there are many, many kinds of discipline. Under the Mosaic law... If you sinned a sin the first time, there were seven things you happened to you by way of discipline. If you sin the sin again the second time, seven more things were added. And it went up to seven times seven, forty nine different types of discipline for one sin mentioned in the Mosaic Law. So whenever we sin, we're up for discipline. <clears throat> now, rebound does several things. Rebound brings you back into fellowship. That's first John one nine and or rebound. Once you are back in fellowship, one of three things will happen to you. First, as in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one, no discipline at all. The discipline is removed entirely. And many times when you confess a sin one seventieth of a second afterwards, the discipline is removed entirely depending upon the nature of the sin and other circumstances. Secondly, the discipline is minimized. Because you have rebounded, the discipline is cut down. Thirdly, the discipline continues at its same intensity, but being in fellowship you can ride it out. So the discipline continues. One of these three things happens every time you sin. The discipline is removed. The discipline is minimized. It's cut down. Or three, the discipline continues at its same intensity. The longer you stay out of fellowship, the greater becomes the discipline. The longer you stay out here, the more discipline you get. And if you stay out long enough, it stacks up so heavy... So long that you, even yourself, are convinced that you were never a believer and you never knew God, even though you were and are under divine discipline. Now, of course, next time, I don't want to scare any of you, but we're going into the doctrine of discipline next time. We do not have time to develop it tonight. We're going to see that every great Christian who ever lived was subjected to discipline But he always took his discipline in the right manner, and therefore he survived his discipline and became a wonderful person. All right, now let's take a look at one more principle tonight in the subject of rebound. The principle of rebound, and for this we're going to Luke. Luke chapter fifteen. Starting at verse eleven. Luke. here is a parable of our Lord. This parable starts out by saying a certain man had two sons. I want you to notice immediately we have two brothers. They have a relationship with their father. The father, of course, in the parable represents the heavenly father. The sons represent two believers. When the parable opens, they are sons of their father. When the parable closes, they are sons of their father. During the course of the parable, both sons are always sons. There's the doctrine. Once a son, always a son. When you believe in Christ, you are born into the family of God. You are always a child of God. That can never be changed. I can distinctly remember times when uh, I would like to have changed uh, my relationship, the times when my father would uh, give me a licking. And since he was so strong, and since he always did such a thorough job, I always at that moment wanted to be the son of the of the man that lived down the street who didn't look very strong and probably couldn't whip his boy anyway. But the fact remained that I was always my father's son. Now there were times when my father was very proud of me, he told me so. And there were times when he wasn't proud of me, and he told me so. And I always got the impression that during the times he was not proud of me, he could almost wish that I was someone else's son. But he always had to wind up admitting that I was his son and there was nothing either one of us could do about it now. Now, this is the principle you must remember. Once a son, always a son. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God and you will always be a child of God. Nothing will ever change that. A certain man had two sons. Galatians 3.26 Ye are the sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. John one twelve, But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them to believe on his name. So the men started out sons, they continued as sons. A certain man refers to God the Father. Had his imperfect linear action. started, he kept on having. So this is the top circle where the sons live. Christ is the Son of God. Everyone in the top circle shares his sonship. X, equals elder brother. Y equals younger brother. When this parable opens up, elder brother and younger brother are in the top circle, and they will remain there. When the parable opens, X and Y are in the bottom circle as well, which means they have believed in Christ. They are in fellowship with God for all eternity. They are in fellowship with God in time. All right, verse 12. Here's why, younger brother speaking. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. Give me my assets for operation in time. And he divided unto them, not just to the younger brother, but to both of them, he divided his assets, a picture of God providing for us. He divided unto them his living God provides for us as believers in phase two. Now, both of them have assets. Please notice how they use their assets. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together. He picked up his assets and took off. And he took his journey into a far country, and there he wasted his substance with riotous living. All right, at this point, why the younger brother, the prodigal son, is out of fellowship. And when we conclude this particular verse, you will notice that X, the elder brother, is spiritual, and Y is carnal, he's out of fellowship. Y is carnal, X is spiritual. Both of them, however, are still in the top circle. Both of them have an eternal relationship with God which nothing can destroy. The son is still a son even though he's in a far country. All right, whenever we sin, the next item on the agenda is what? Discipline. Here comes discipline, verse 14. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine. God spanks his own. God spanks his own children, not someone else's children. God does not spank the devil's children. Discipline is for believers only. Now, God judges unbelievers in time and in eternity, but God disciplines his own children. And here is the discipline. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. He's suffering now. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. So now he's going out to feed the swine, and he's in such terrible shape that he wants to eat the slop and cut the swine out. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat and no man gave him anything. So he's in very bad shape. He's suffering now. Of course, this is what he deserves. He had it coming to him. He's out of line. So here's discipline and operation. When he came to himself, one day while he was eating that slop and realizing that he couldn't last forever on it, he began to think about his situation a little bit. And suddenly he came to himself and he said this. Quote, verse 17. How many hired servants of my father's have bread and enough to spare, and yet I am in the process of perishing from hunger. Now what's he going to do about it? Verse 18. I will arise. I'll get up out of this trough. I will go to my Father. He's still his Father. I will say unto him, please notice content, confession. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. He's going to confess his sin. Now, he's going to add something. It isn't necessary. It doesn't hurt anything, but it doesn't give rebound. It's the confession of his sin that provides the rebound. I am no longer worthy to be called thy son. Now, get this. And make me now one of thy hired servants. What's wrong with that? Once a son, always a son. He's an unworthy son, but he's still a son. The only difference is he's an unworthy son. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be thy son, make me a servant. He can't make a servant out of him, he'll always be a son. No matter what he does with him, he's still his son. So you see, when a believer's out of fellowship, there's another principle. He doesn't uh, savvy doctrine too well. And he's disoriented at this point with regard to doctrine, simply because uh, he somehow gets the idea that his father can say, Hocus Pocus, you're now a servant. He can't be a servant. All right? Having thought this in his mind, he gets up and he does it, verse 20. He arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. Now, I want you to notice this very carefully. God's attitude toward the rebounding Christian is expressed in this phrase. His father saw him, God sees us, had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. His father ran to him. He hasn't even said anything yet. And here is God's attitude of grace toward us when we rebound. He runs toward us. And he kisses him. And of course it says, later he kissed him again and again. Now the son makes his confession. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called thy son. And at that point his father interrupted him. He didn't get to finish it out by saying, Make me a hired servant. Halfway through this no more worthy business, the father interrupts him. Why? Because he's made his confession. He's back in fellowship. Now, notice what his father does. The father said to the servants, bring forth the best robe. The robe represents experiential righteousness. This young man is now back in fellowship. He has confessed his sin. He has rebounded. And why? is back in the bottom circle. So bring the best robe. Put it on him. That's the robe of experiential righteousness. Put a ring on his hand. The ring is the his father's signature on the checkbook. This is the signet ring. And this means he can draw on his father's account for whatever he needs. Shoes on his feet. The shoes represent, of course, service. Bring hither the fatted calf, speaking of fellowship, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead. Out of the seven deaths in the scripture, this is, of course, experiential death. Death meaning out of fellowship. Same death found in Ephesians 5, 14. And is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. And they began to be married. Now, verse 25, change of pace. Elder brother, the elder son was in the field. He's out serving, you see. This is X now. He was out serving, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants, and he kept asking, literally, in perfect linear action, Sarge. What's happening here? What's happening here? What's happening here? And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. Now this is what we should read in verse 28. And so the elder brother was delighted to have his younger brother back, and he went in and threw his arms around him and said, Welcome home, brother. Sir, glad you're back. We can use an extra hand in the field. Verse 28 is what we read. He was angry. Now notice this very carefully. As of this moment... X takes a journey into a far country. The elder brother's out of fellowship. He was angry. The father has a right to treat anyone the way he wants to. Don't you get mad at God the father because he treats another Christian in grace. Remember, the shoe may be on your foot someday and you'll want all of that grace coming your way. Now, the elder brother is angry because his father has treated him in grace and he would not go in. Therefore, his father came down and begged him to come in, but he wouldn't do it. And he goes on to complain, Father, I've been faithful all these years, and yet you didn't throw a party for me, and so on. Well, his father has, but he's forgotten it. And in verse 30, he goes on to say, And when this young boy gets back, who has devoured his living with harlots, how does he know that? He doesn't. Say he's maligning his brother now. However, his brother lost his money. It just says riotous living, and that could be a lot of things. He's just assuming that. See, so you know, here's another point. When a person gets out of fellowship one way, it brings out all of his bad qualities. Elder brother has a tendency to mind other people's business. He's guilty of the law and proboscis. He's maligning. The Bible doesn't say anywhere that the younger brother uh, lost his money that way. He might have, but there's no indication of it. And furthermore, it's none of his brother's business Inasmuch as, whatever his sins were, they have been forgiven. Principle, don't you ever penalize another believer for their sins. Every once in a while I bump into someone somewhere who tells the story of a congregation. Some bird gets out of line in the congregation, and the rest of the congregation, in their sanctified, saintly, holier-than-thou attitude, walk up and down on him. Kick him around. They play kick the can with him. Who has the right to do that? All people do when they start practicing that is get in out of fellowship and get under discipline themselves. One of the most beautiful assets of the Christian way of life is the ability to mind your own business and to live your own life before the Lord. Live your life as unto the Lord. Don't worry about the other believers stepping out of line. God will take care of him. And if you try to help God, you will be between God and the whip. And who gets it then? You do. So I'm just going to save you a little wear and tear. Live your own life before the Lord. Don't worry about someone else. You know, it's amazing how many Christians are concerned that some other Christian is going to get away with something. Fantastic. Don't you worry about the other. You just relax, rebound when necessary as far as you are concerned. Now, we find this brother out of fellowship. Notice what his father says to him in verse 31. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. The brother can have anything he wants in fellowship. And yet he goes on, and we leave him out of fellowship. We don't know whether the elder brother ever got back in fellowship or not. Now, here's the principle, the bottom circle. Every time you sin, you're out. Every time you confess your sin, you're back. As long as you live on the face of the earth when you sin against the Lord, you must rebound the sooner the better. If you don't, your life is useless. You have no power, no service. You're absolutely useless as far as the Lord is concerned. And don't ever buy this line often quoted from the pulpit, the bird with a broken pinion will never fly as high again. God mends the pinion. First John 1, 9 cleanses from sin. Once a person has been cleansed from sin, he's ready to roll again and to serve the Lord. And this is the only way it is handled. The only way. All right, let's take whatever your favorite sin is. Let's say you commit it 99 times tomorrow. How many times do you have to confess it to be back in fellowship at the end of the day? 99. Suppose that you commit this sin 99 times and only confess at 98. What's your status tomorrow night at sundown? You're out of the bottom circle. If you commit at 99 and you confess at 99, you're in fellowship. I trust that by tomorrow night at sundown, all of you will have a wonderful evening in the bottom circle. We'll continue this next Tuesday night. Now, Father, we're grateful for the privilege of studying thy word. May God, the Holy Spirit, open our hearts to this tremendous concept this gracious provision which thou hast made for each one of us, the provision of rebound. May we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ avail ourselves of the grace of God in order that we might walk in fellowship with thee, that we might serve thee in a manner acceptable. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen.